what is codependency? And if you've been in a toxic relationship, does that automatically mean you have it? Or might you be someone what Sandra Brown calls having super traits? In today's episode, Carrie and I discuss codependency versus super traits and why we differ and how we feel about each of these terms. And the self-help tip is on how to create a list of top lines for yourself. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free with Carrie and Tara, the podcast where we talk about strategies, tips, and tricks for navigating and recovering from toxic relationships. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience and the author of Love You More, the inside graphic look at my survival of a narcissistic relationship. And I'm your other host, Tara Blair Ball, certified relationship coach, abuse survivor, and author of Reclaim and Recover, Heal from Toxic Relationships with the Seven-Step Guided Journal. Today, we're going to talk about codependency, which it turns out Carrie and I very much disagree on. I love the term codependency because it was very helpful for me in my specific journey to healing. Carrie asked me before we started when I first heard the term codependency. And honestly, I'm really not sure. I would guess it was probably when I first went to an Al-Anon meeting. I I dated a man who was on his second DUI when I was 22. And when he was court ordered to attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, I attended with him because I was such a good girlfriend. When I went to those meetings, they suggested I attend Al-Anon. And Al-Anon, they talked a lot about codependency and enabling behaviors. The best definition I've heard for codependency is that it is a dysfunctional relationship with the self. And this is how it's defined in psychology today, is that it is a dysfunctional relationship dynamic where one person assumes the role of the giver, sacrificing their own needs and well-being for the sake of the other, the taker. So what do you think about codependency, Carrie? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I know. I was trying to think of when I first heard it. Are you familiar with Claudia Black's work? She does a lot of adult children, adult children of alcoholics. I actually got to hear her speak way back in the 1980s. I went to a conference. Powerful woman. She has some really great literature out there on that. And she may have brought it up. I'm aware of Melanie Beatty also wasn't. Didn't she write Codependent No More in the 1980s? I think that's yeah, yeah. So here's kind of like to put myself into perspective. My graduate training was from mid-80s. It was when I went to school in the mid-80s. If you think about what was happening around the mid-80s, that's the the DSM-3 was released in the early 80s. That means that the narcissistic personality disorder really made the first time it made its appearance. Autism was making its appearance. There's a lot of things that were really new. Codependency hadn't really showed up. So that's partly... If you put my training into perspective, you can see why something, oh, you know, the other thing that was happening in the 80s, that's when Prozac made its launch. Just as I was starting my first experience at a psychiatric hospital, Prozac rolled out. So I got to actually watch the difference from the old style of treatment to the new style of treatment. So that may have been a partly why I, I struggle with it. But here's the other reason. If you Google or especially do like a Google Scholar search where you do based on research, you're going to find there's not a a cohesive, uh, a green definition. Psychology as a field does not agree on what codependency actually is. So we're talking about a lot of different things and we're kind of throwing it into the hat and saying it's this. But when you bring it up, it may not be what I'm bringing up and talking about. We may be talking about vastly different things. I think that's why I struggle with it. And at an emotional level, okay, have I been 
technically by that definition of what you just described, have I behaved that way? Yes, I have. But did I, why am I doing that? Well, because I was raised in a home where I was emotionally responsible for the adults in my life. Is that my fault that that happened when that's a survival technique? technique. It helped me get out of the house and do really well. No. So for me to say, yes, I'm codependent, there's a there's a level of responsibility we place on the person when we say that they are. It's like, bad you. You should have known better. You should not be doing that. Healthy people don't do that. Well, hey, it got me out of a, it got me out sane. I'm, I'm where I am at today because I learned that people pleasing skill. So I, I, that's, I don't like it because I feel like it's blaming. I've never taken it as such. And I think maybe the difference why is because I also connect it to the sign of like attachment theory and that my similarly, you know, a lot of a lot of those of us who and you're right, there is no similar definition across the board. It's not something that appears in any of the DSM or anything like that. When we're thinking about attachment theory and how in the first year of life, our blueprint for relationships is created. I think about it a lot in terms of that, in that my blueprint or default is to sacrifice myself for the betterment of other people, to sacrifice myself in some ways that is actually selfishly motivated. And the reason why I say that is because I I avoided conflict, walked on the eggshells, wasn't totally honest, manipulated, because I didn't want to deal with the uncomfortable feelings of others. And in yeah, some ways, that was about, very selfishly motivated. Yeah, but when we're talking about infants who have no choice and who will actually right. literally die if they can't figure out Absolutely. how to show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not to blame for what happened to me when I was a kid, but I am responsible if I want to make healthier choices in adult relationships. And I think that's the case with most things is that. Just because we experience trauma or whatever when we were children, it doesn't mean we have to um, rely on those survival mechanisms as an adult. And those survival mechanisms were necessary for me as a child, and I'm certain that they were for you too. But those, they don't have to last if I'm going to create healthy, secure relationships as an adult. But at what point do you then say you move from the place of, okay, you didn't know better, you got out of a really bad home situation, Yay for you. That's a big win to, oh, you know what? You're kind of messing up adult relationships. Maybe you need to start looking at this different and get your act together. See, that's how where I find it's really hard is is that you you have it's through failure we discover we have this pattern. It's not it's not because we suddenly have this insight of we become a self-reflective person like, hmm, I'm people pleasing awfully a lot. I should maybe you no, know, it comes out of the fact that something bad happens and then says, you sacrificed yourself in that relationship and you probably shouldn't have done it. Have you ever thought about maybe that's a pattern of yours? It, that's, I think that's the other part that kind of rubs me wrong is that we've, we've already attached a label to somebody just that they had no awareness until that happened. They discover it in a back end way, not in a, it's not a planned thing. It's, it's a, it's a failure. It's an accident that happened. I wish it was nicer. That's, that's a, I just wish the whole thing was. Because let's be honest here, we know out there, there is a lot of criticism leveled against codependent people. And because, here's the other thing is, I think a lot of codependent people are women. So you get this problem Mm. of, I mean, don't you agree most of codependency is found more? I'm not saying they're not codependent men, but they're more likely to be a woman than a man. And in, in some ways, I would disagree with you, actually. Okay. In my experience with my clients... People pleasing is 
considered normal in a lot of a lot of the men like not not really being direct doing things for others believing that i'm providing so doing things for others with the expectation that they'll get appreciation and reward i i see that sort of hardwired into a lot of men but they don't necessarily recognize what it is yeah so they wouldn't say to you i think i'm people pleaser or i think i'm no. they wouldn't come up mm-hmm. yeah you're i know you worked with more men in your career probably than i have because i would say i would say in my counseling practice it was heavily probably 95 percent women yeah i saw men but they were more likely to come in for couples work not just straight out for therapy but i think you've done a lot more work with just men on their own and you're right when you said that yes i've seen that dynamic a lot i've even met men dating wise who say yeah i sacrificed this and i did this and that right. you're not grateful i'm thinking i didn't even know that you did that i nor did i ever ask you to do that <laughs> and now you're mad at me for yeah. that it's wow you know so yeah i can see how that that's a common dynamic and i bet you right now the men who are listening have no idea that that's the equivalent of a woman doing too much it's the same thing it's very similar dynamics yeah, yeah. and it's a relationship killer it absolutely is because that expectation, that anger, that resentment, the, you know, I see it a lot with my own husband and that he won't say specifically that he doesn't want to do something. He'll say things like, I would rather not. And I I don't see that as a definitive no. You know what I mean? Like, I, I see that as, oh, I would rather not, but I'll do it. You know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. he's just not as clear as he could be. And I've called him out on it for for it before because later he's been like i didn't want to do that and i was like well it wasn't you use this vague imprecise language that's not clear in the moment that you don't want to do that you know what i mean and i i see that sort of sidestepping not not clear part with i've seen it with many men yeah. that i've dated i see it with my husband and it's it's these small sayings that again can build that that expectation that resentment that anger that yeah is the relationship color yeah. Well, my my take on it was when I see that someone does that to me, I then the people pleasing part of me is like, did you really mean that? Or are you just being nice to me? <laughs> I usually follow up. I usually do the caretaking and follow up, which I shouldn't have to because it's not my job to take that on. That's what really yeah, saying. I don't is, do that anymore, yeah. which is that can be a point of contention. too. <laughs> Why aren't you people pleasing me? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm trying to get healthier. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, so you know, when it comes to codependency and narcissistic abuse, I think there it gets really tricky because part of what happens is, is there's two groups of people. I don't know how familiar with Sandra Brown's research out of Purdue in 2014. So in 2014, she had 600 couples that she looked at. And up to then, it pri- previous to that, it had been assumed that people who get into a pathological love relationship must be codependent. And she was looking mostly at women who were in a, a pathological relationship with men. But what she found actually was startling. She found that there was two separate groups of her subjects. They broke into two groups. There was the group who had had a history of trauma before, who probably had what we would say classically codependent characteristics. And that was a roughly around 30, I think it was like 37% of that group was that. So roughly one third of the group. And then two thirds of the group actually had no history of trauma, none. And they actually were high-functioning women who'd been doing really, really well in their life until they met 
this person and they got into a relationship with them and then they started to kind of fall apart and become more codependent as a result of trying to deal with the trauma bond. So that group was the 60, 63%. She said she found two consistent traits across that group that was elevated to the point of extremely elevated, not just a little elevated, but like shockingly elevated. And that was they were highly cooperative people, meaning they played well as part of a team. And they, they tend to be very conscientious, which meant they had sort of an internal moral code about what it meant to be human and how to behave with other people. And those two super traits, those two overly elevated traits made them susceptible to getting to get trauma bonded with somebody. So I thought that was really interesting. I know I actually I fit into the 37 percent. I don't like saying that because I had a, a history of trauma before. And yes, I tend to do too much emotionally in relationships if I'm not careful. But I have met a lot of people who, who are out of the 63 percent who was completely blindsided by the abuse. Yeah, yeah. And I will say I've read a lot about codependency, like facing codependency by Pia Melody, codependent no more by Melody Beatty, as well as Dr. Aziz Gazapura has a book that's it's catered more towards a male audience, I think. It's called Not Nice, but specifically about people pleasing. And I've seen a lot of those those books do talk about not necessarily it being rooted in childhood or something that you've learned there. It is for me. It is for many of my clients. But for some of them, it's not. They get into a relationship with someone that they see as having the same traits or qualities as themselves. And that soft-heartedness, that agreeableness gets taken advantage of. And you're right, but in studies of narcissistic abuse victims, people who are actually more likely to be cheated on, in two studies on those, they found that the people that are most likely to be cheated on and victims of narcissistic abuse have those traits. And I think it I think it makes a lot of sense because, for example, if someone may believe that it's OK for them to cheat on us because they think we might forgive them for their first or second transgression, things like that, that might make us more susceptible to have that happen. And it sucks because yeah. we wouldn't do that in turn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I know. I, I find that term that still it's very um it's a very negative term to me, but how how do you think you find it as a positive? How I know it's been helpful to you, it's been powerful to you. So help me understand why it didn't feel like a negative label to you. So codependent, the term codependent, and I'm sure you know this, was originally based in the partners of very very far gone alcoholics. So the alcoholic yep. was the t- dependent on the substance while the codependent was the one in relationship with them. And what they found is the person who was in relationship with the alcoholic had similar, had a similar addictive or alcoholic relationship dysfunction, but with the person, not a substance. And I, I have seen that for myself, just that I was addicted to these people, that I saw these people as um, that if they were happy, I was happy, that things like those aspects of it, that I found it very helpful in recognizing traits in myself for that. And also just at the identification, if I know what it is, then I can I can work on it. I've never seen it as a negative. I've never seen it as a negative. I just haven't. And I'll share some patterns. This is on Codependence Anonymous. Their website, which is coda.org, they talk about patterns and characteristics of 
codependency. And I think some of these were really helpful for me specifically because I didn't recognize these characteristics in myself and didn't recognize the motivations behind some of the things I was doing. So these are available there, but you know, having difficulty identifying what they're feeling, minimizing, altering, or denying how they truly feel, perceiving themselves as completely unselfish and dedicated to the well-being of others, lacking empathy for the feelings and needs of others. And I'll come back to that one because that's another one. Labeling others with negative traits, think they don't need any help from other people, masking pain with anger, humor, or isolation, expressing negativity or aggression in indirect and passive ways. Do not recognize the unavailability of those people to whom they are attracted to, difficulty making decisions, feeling not good enough, embarrassed to receive recognition, praise, or gifts, have difficulty admitting a mistake, extremely loyal, remaining in harmful situations too long, compromising own values and integrity to avoid rejection or anger, hypervigilant regarding the feelings of others and taking on those feelings. And this is one that I really struggled with, but and some of my clients have seen this for themselves too, but accepting sexual attention when they want love, making decisions without regard to the consequence, believing other people are incapable of taking care of themselves, attempting to convince others what to think, do, or feel, demanding that their needs are being met, using charm and charisma to convince others of their capacity to be caring and compassionate, Using blame and shame to exploit others. Act in ways that invite others to reject shame or express anger towards them. Avoiding intimacy as a way to maintain distance. Use, using direct or in, indirect or evasive communication to avoid conflict or confrontation. Using feelings to avoid feeling vulnerable. Pulling people toward them, but when they get close, pushing them away. That's a lot of patterns, but I mean, when I had this definition in front of me and saw these patterns and characteristics, I just could not ignore the impact of it. Mm -hmm. I I just, it was startling. Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful list. I'll make sure that we put a link in in the show notes so people can go refer to it because yeah, wow. It is a very, very powerful list. So what I'm hearing for you is it opened the door of increased awareness. It didn't make you feel shut down and, and ashamed or labeled. It was helpful, impactful. It was very impactful. I also think a lot about it in terms of just improving my romantic relationships. Like, for example, I I dated many emotionally unavailable people and I would blame them for that. I would blame them for that Mm. and not really recognize that there was probably a reason why I chose emotionally unavailable people. And it was because I was a I was emotionally unavailable myself, that I was scared of intimacy, scared of truly sharing and being vulnerable. The fact that I would often be sort of a chameleon in relationships by liking whatever they liked and how that was, again, a way that I didn't have to be intimate and vulnerable. If I was rejected, Mm -hmm. I was not rejected for my true self. And the hardest part for me, honestly, when I got in a a healthier relationship was really recognizing how my people-pleasing attitude showed up as manipulation. I remember I was going on a work trip while I was dating my now husband. And the work trip I was going to spend, I was going to be with an ex of mine for an extended period of time in another country. I knew he would be concerned because here I am traveling in another country with this ex. But I found myself lying about the aspects of the trip. And I I wow. thought I thought I was being selfless. I thought I was helping him feel assured about me going. But then I can't keep track of my own lies. I'm not a good liar. You know what I mean? And so 
I was going to have to spend time with my ex on this trip. I'm going to have to communicate with him and stuff like that. And I, I had good boundaries. It was not going to be a thing at all. But because of my lies, I then freaked out my husband. He was like, why are you lying to me? It's like, like, why did you tell me you're never going to have to see him if you are? And right. I was being selfish in that. I didn't want to deal with his uncomfortable feelings, which he deserved to have. I didn't want to deal with him right. being being worried or scared. But so that was selfishly motivated on my part. And I had to recognize that. Yeah. And I see the manipulation. That's what you said earlier, which when you said that, I wanted to choke. You know, I had to see the degree that I'm being manipulative. But that's a good example where you're avoiding the tough spot of that conversation. You didn't want to have that conversation. So it is a way to avoid it. Then you did this other thing that seemingly looks like a really helpful, supportive thing, but actually has other not so nice reasons to it. Yeah, it's a good example. Yeah. And it's not encouraging that intimacy that that I supposedly want. I want to be intimate and vulnerable. I want to have these deep conversations. But as as someone who was in these types of relationships, I, I didn't know how frightened I was of conflict. And a lot of that came from if my mother was upset, for example, I would be physically abused. So that was a survival mechanism to, to make her not be mad at me. But I, here I am, an adult, and I'm not in an abusive relationship, but I'm bringing that same pattern into these relationships. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think here's where I kind of like to to wrap it up. See, see it. I, I think if people find it helpful and it, it gives them freedom and it gives them information, for example, I imagine looking at that list and saying, oh, OK, I need to behave differently around these points, that if it brings clarity, brings greater level of control, that is really, really helpful. I know for me that I, I just I have so much such a shame response to it that it's easier for me to look at the literature on super traits and look at that list because they are out there. You can find them. Sandra Brown's got her book, Women Who Love Psychopaths, for example. You can find that list and then say, okay, I need to, for example, not blindly trust people. I need to be slower, slow down my expectations when I get into a relationship. I need to show up authentically in a relationship and let the chips fall where they, I mean, I can begin to think about how to be less agreeable how to be a little less so intense around my my conscientiousness. That that to me helps me because then I don't get into the shame piece. But I can see how I know, I know, I know it's been helpful to you. I've met other people. It's been helpful to them that the codependency model really for some people brings a lot of freedom. What do you do? You, what do you think of that idea? I I believe a lot in the take what you like and leave the rest advice. And so I'm okay, Carrie, if it's you like just want to you want to take this part of it and leave the rest. Like, I don't I don't see it as an affront or anything. But I think that's a good way to view it. That if you have an issue with that specific term, maybe just looking at the qualities and you don't have to use that to define yourself. And, you know, I think that's totally I think that's everybody's choice. But I right. do think just learning more about it, period, is helpful just to figure out is if there's some qualities in it that you want to look at and work on, like you've done with the super traits. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I think what we're really saying to people is I we are not accountable for being a victim. Right. That happened to us. And in, in, in a perfect world, let's go back to this. Let's pretend we're in a sandbox of a of a computer generated simulated world. Evil people wouldn't exist and our, our naivete or our innocence would have been fine. 
we would have not gotten injured. That, that in itself is not a bad trait. But unfortunately, we don't live in a world like that. We live where roughly up to 20% of the world is dangerous. And we need to begin to recognize and learn how to spot who they are. But now that we know, we have an accountability to do something different so it doesn't become a habitual pattern in our life. And that's what I, I see. So I don't like this this group of people who say, you should be more accountable. It would never have happened if you were smarter or different. No, well, you know, you can't always avoid that. But but once it does happen, it is then on us to then try to make sure that it, if to the degree we can, that it doesn't happen again. And I know it's not a perfect situation. It's always we're always learning. But I do think it's at that point we become, need to become more informed. Yeah, I met with a client not too long ago where we were talking about she was like, how do I not be with this kind of person ever again? And and I brought up the point. I said, you may. And that was true for me that I I did. I dated some people that were like like my ex because I think many abusers are so charming and charismatic and can can really misguide us and mislead us in the beginning. But really the difference, and I pointed this out to her, is I didn't get married to those people and have kids with them. I didn't stay with them. Yeah. I had a lot more awareness and I had to be a lot more compassionate with myself and that, hey, I met him, then I saw this, and then hey, I chose to leave. I didn't chose to try to fix it or change it or stick around. Like I chose to leave. Like and I'm going we are going to meet horrible people. We're we're just going to. They're out there in the world. They're out there. They're gonna prey on us. But we can make different choices moving forward. We can and we can be gentle with ourselves and that, hey, I didn't I didn't stick around as much as yeah. long. We still may make mistakes, but they're not same old, same old. I love that. That's such a that's a great way to view it. That's really, really wonderful. Today's self-help tip is to create a list of top lines for yourself. So as Carrie mentioned in our last episode, the power of identifying our deal breakers, our non-negotiables. This is sort of the opposite. Being able to create a list of things that you should do. Absolutely. The things that are the healthiest for you to do. So your list of top lines might include taking a walk around the neighborhood, a list of friends that you can reach out to, call or hang out with, other self-nurturing activities like movies, shows, podcasts, dancing, exercises. But a list of List of things that you can turn to when you're feeling like you need something healthy, something positive for you to do to care for yourself. That's you great. I call them, yeah, I call them self-soothers. Self-soothers? You know, we rest that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of yours? I tend to reach out to people is one. I think the other thing I tend to do is do some self-talk. I have ways which I kind of check in with myself and put things into perspective. Probably I rely on music. That's another big one to me. That's good. I, I like walking or exercising. Those are I I need movement of some kind. Sometimes I'll dance in my kitchen, but I have to be in a kind of a perfect. I need to be in like the right kind of mood to like dance in my kitchen kind of. But yeah, I think this is good even to have it just posted somewhere. Whether, whatever you call them, it doesn't really matter. So you can remind yourself when you're not in that kind of a place. So, OK, what, what can I do to self-soothe or care for myself in a positive and healthy way today instead? Yeah, very helpful. I love that. It's a great. Great suggestion. So do you want to claim codependency or having super traits for yourself? Why or why not? 
And what things will you put as top lines for yourself? You can let us know by emailing us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrytara.com. If you haven't yet, make sure you follow or subscribe, write us a review. And if you know someone who would benefit from this episode, please share it with them. If you're not following us on social media yet, you can follow me at tara.relationshipcoach and Carrie at Carrie McAvoy PhD. We will see you back here next Monday where we'll be talking about gaslighting.